We'll start with a question for you to think about. What is it that's central to the Christian faith? What is the heart of it? Well, if you listen to many people, they will tell you the heart of the Christian faith is Jesus teaching about how to live. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do to others what you would have them do to you. Take the plank out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. We could go on and on. Jesus gave lots of instruction about how to live. And many people will say those principles are the heart of Christianity. That teaching is the enduring legacy of Jesus Christ. If only we'd all try to live by those wonderful principles, the world would be a much, much better place. And that is what Christianity is all about. Encouraging us to follow the wise teaching of Jesus Christ. Would you agree with that? Well, there has to be an element of truth to that. Jesus certainly did give us all those great principles and many more. And he didn't give them to us so we could ignore them. And yet, when you and I take the time to read the New Testament accounts of Jesus' life, what we find is their overwhelming focus is not on Jesus' teaching, it's on Jesus' death. The four New Testament Gospels have been described as accounts of Jesus' death with extended introductions. In other words, however much the Gospels give us details of Jesus' instruction on how to live, they are much more occupied with telling us about his death. Matthew's Gospel has 28 chapters, and from chapter 16 onwards, the focus is on Jesus' death. That's 13 chapters out of the 28 that focus on Jesus' death and then the aftermath of his death. Mark's gospel has 16 chapters, and from chapter 9 onwards, the focus is on Jesus' death. That's eight chapters out of the 16. Luke's gospel has 24 chapters, and again, like Mark, from chapter 9 onwards, yes, there is other stuff going on, but from chapter 9, Jesus' death begins to dominate the narrative in Luke's gospel. That's 16 chapters out of the 24. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are accounts of Jesus' death with extended introductions. What about John's gospel? Well, it's hard to pinpoint a start point for the focus on Jesus' death in John's gospel because it's there in the foreground from the very first chapter. In John chapter 1, John the Baptist points at Jesus and says, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God means the sacrificial lamb. 
the lamb is going to die. As early as chapter 2 in John's Gospel, Jesus is talking about his body being destroyed and raised after three days. By chapter 3, Jesus is saying he must be lifted up. Just as Moses lifted up a snake on a wooden pole in the Old Testament. So we could argue that John's gospel doesn't bother with an introduction. It gets straight down to focusing on Jesus' death. But if there is a turning point in John's gospel, it comes in chapter 12. Chapter 11 recorded the raising of Lazarus. Lazarus the sixth of the signs Jesus performed in chapters 1 to 11. The very end of chapter 11 and then the beginning of chapter 12, the focus shifts to the Passover festival about to be celebrated in Jerusalem. Well, the first 11 chapters of John's gospel covered a period of several years. The remaining chapters, chapters 12 to 21, focus on just a few days. And those few days are dominated by Jesus' death. The build-up to it, the event itself, and the aftermath. So with that in mind, let's pick up where we left off last week in chapter 12. If you're using a church Bible, it's page 1079. In the larger print Bibles, 1671. And in our passage, Jesus announces that the hour has come. We're going to read from chapter 12, verse 20, down to verse 33. The setting here, as I said, is Jerusalem, just a few days before the Passover festival. Chapter 20, or verse 20 says, Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip, in turn, told Jesus. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. Then the crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. 
Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. This is God's word. And as we've said, it focuses on Jesus' announcement that the hour has come. Several times in earlier chapters, Jesus mentioned this hour, and and he made it clear the hour had not yet come. But now it has. But what does he mean by the hour? Is it 9 o'clock? 12 o'clock? Maybe 5 o'clock? Well, we probably realize Jesus isn't talking about a specific hour of the day. He means the event of his death and what comes after it. His resurrection from the dead and his ascension back to his Father's side, his return to heaven. All of that is one inseparable package that Jesus refers to as his hour or the hour. It's all one eternally significant event. And in the passage we've just read, we learn that the event of Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension will glorify the Son and the Father. First of all, in verses 20 to 26, the event of Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension will glorify the Son as He produces a great harvest of life. Last week, the end of our passage described Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem, where He was greeted by many people. And that welcome for Jesus exasperated His enemies among the Jewish leaders. They said to one another, look how the whole world has gone after Him. Now, that is a wild exaggeration, of course. Even if there are a couple of million people in Jerusalem for the Passover, and even if a significant percentage of them did come to welcome Jesus, it's certainly not the whole world. But, as so often in John's Gospel, this is a case where people speak better than they know or understand. Because even though the whole world hasn't come to Jerusalem, representatives of the whole world definitely have. And the very next verse shows that. If you look back in our reading to verse 20, there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. It's unlikely these people are Jews. They obviously have some reverence and admiration for Judaism. That's why they've come to Jerusalem for the Passover. But they are Gentiles. They're people like you and me. And they are drawn to Jesus. We would like to see Jesus means we would like to meet Him and talk with Him. No doubt they have already seen Him with their eyes entering Jerusalem on a donkey. 
And now they want to get to know this so unusual king. This king who is welcomed by the crowds as a conqueror, as he was just a few verses back, but who chooses to ride a donkey instead of a war horse. So back in verse 19, Jesus' enemies spoke better than they knew. These Gentiles are a token of the fact that, yes, men, women, and children from the whole world will go after Jesus. And what's very noticeable is Jesus takes this approach by these Greeks as a kind of signal. One writer says their request to meet Jesus is like an exploding fuse in Jesus' mind. In verse 23, look how he responds to the request by saying, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The Son of Man is Jesus' favorite way of referring to himself. But why does he say he will be glorified? Haven't we been saying he's going to die? How can he be glorified through that? What glory can there be in the unjust slaughter of Jesus? Well, the glory is explained in verse 24. Very truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Jesus compares his own death to the death of a seed. And when a seed dies, it produces life, a harvest. I am as clueless a gardener as you're ever going to meet. But even I know the beautiful flowers that appear in my front garden do not just will themselves into existence. They appear because seed has been sown in my front garden either carried there and dropped by the wind or carefully planted there by Megan or Elijah. Calvin, you and I have other strengths, right? (laughs) Having green fingers is not a strength that you and I have. But that's just how it works. Life rising from the ground comes from seed that has fallen into the ground and died. We could say the seed gives up its life to produce new life. Flowers are another crop of some kind. And here Jesus says that's also how it works when it comes to new spiritual life. Life that endures for eternity. It comes from my death. There's no other way. Jesus' death will glorify him as the one who, through his death, produces a great harvest of life. We started by mentioning the common misconception that says the heart of Christianity is about obeying the principles Jesus gave us, about how to live, love your neighbor as yourself, and so on. We've seen how the New Testament does not agree with that. The New Testament presents Jesus' death and its aftermath 
as the heart of Christianity. But here, verses 25 and 26 show our own lives do come into the picture in all this. And here is how they come into the picture. We cannot produce eternal life in ourselves. We cannot earn it for ourselves. But here Jesus says the way to receive eternal life is to turn the life we do have over to Jesus. To give this present life over to Him. Look at that in verse 25. Anyone who loves their life will lose it. While anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. In verse 25, love and hate are a way of talking about preference. That's how the contrast is used throughout the Bible. For example, in the Old Testament, when God says, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated, the sense is not that God despised Esau. It's that he gave preference to Jacob over his brother Esau. The blessings promised to Abraham came through Jacob's descendants, not Esau's. And so here in verse 25, to love your life in this world means to prefer it and cling to it over eternal life. With the sad result that you miss out on lasting life. On the other hand, to hate your life in this world does not mean you despise it. It means being willing to lose out when it comes to temporary things because you place greater value on the lasting life Jesus gives. It's important to see this is not about trying as hard as we can to be miserable here and now so we'll inherit eternal life in the future. No, this is about abandoning a life with ourselves at the center. And beginning a life with Jesus at the center. It's about following him as our master instead of living like we are our own master. It's the kind of attitude we saw last week in Mary of Bethany. As Mary poured out what she had, that expensive perfume, in honor of Jesus. Following Jesus does involve a kind of death on our part. Dying to our own ambitions to be captain of our own soul. To be lord of the resources we have been given. Following in Jesus, Jesus involves that kind of death on our part. But the kind of Jesus-focused, Jesus-honoring life that grows in place of that old life that new life is only possible because he laid down his life. His death opened up the way to a life that serves Jesus instead of serving ourselves. Just try living a self-denying life under your own steam. You'll very quickly run out of steam. 
Your efforts will peter out very quickly. You'll either give up or you will go on in rotten pride because you're so impressed by your self-denying efforts. And the point here is, truly self-denying lives are always the fruit of Jesus' own self-denial. They are part of this harvest of life that comes from Jesus' death. And there's more to this harvest of life. Those who deny self in order to follow Jesus end up enjoying the presence of Jesus. In verse 26, Jesus says, Where I am, my servant also will be. And the honor that comes to those who follow Jesus, the honor from the Father mentioned at the end of verse 26, that is also the fruit of Jesus' death. If you're a Christian, you will one day stand in front of God the Father and His Son Jesus, and you will receive God's commendation. Well done, good and faithful servant. And in that moment, you will not feel any pride at all, because you will know the life you lived for Jesus and the honor you receive at the end of that life It's all the fruit of Jesus' death on the cross for you. That's why back in verse 23, Jesus was able to say, He will be glorified through His death on the cross. Then verses 27 to 33 tell us, the event of Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension will also Glorify the Father as judgment and salvation come through Jesus' devotion to the Father. That's a bit of a mouthful. Let me try to explain it. The heart of this is Jesus' own absolute commitment to serving these purposes of His Father. The Father will be glorified by Jesus' unlimited devotion to doing His Father's will. In verse 27, Jesus says, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify Your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. We've talked about Jesus being glorified through his death. But if we had the idea that death is going to be a glorious experience for Jesus, now we see the reality. Death is going to be an indescribably horrific experience for Jesus. Not only physically, but also spiritually, primarily spiritually. Jesus is the only human being who has ever been sinless. Yet on the cross, he will become sin. He will take the sins of the world on himself. And because of that, he will be cut off 
from his father. He will be estranged from the one he's been in the closest relationship with for all eternity. And so it is not being flippant at all to say the cross will be hell for Jesus. It really will be. And so we should not be surprised to hear Jesus say in verse 27 that as he faces the cross, his soul is troubled. That English translation is putting it mildly. The same word was used back in chapter 11 to describe Jesus' feelings about the death of Lazarus. It caused him inner turmoil. And here, as Jesus faces his own impending death, he faces it with revulsion and horror. Jesus is not sailing calmly into the storm without a care, whistling as he goes to the cross. He is deeply agitated because there are depths of suffering ahead of Jesus that you and I will never be able to grasp. One writer says, the gospel may be free, but it is not cheap. It's free to us, but it costs Jesus an incredibly high price. And here we get just a little sense of how high that price was. The original text of John's gospel was written in Greek, and there are no question marks in the text. We have to work out when a question is being asked. And the majority of the time, it's very obvious and it's easy to do. But here in verse 27, it is not so obvious. In this state of inner turmoil, Jesus may be asking himself, Shall I pray, Father, save me from this hour? That's how the NIV has it. But it is equally possible Jesus is not asking himself a question about what to pray. He is actually praying, Father, save me from this hour. And that would be in line with the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane recorded in the other Gospels. Jesus prays there, Father, take this cup from me. The cup he's referring to is his death. So I think it's more likely this is an actual prayer from Jesus here in verse 27. He is in agony. At one level, he shrinks back from the horror of the cross. Jesus is a man like us. The book of Hebrews says he's able to feel sympathy for our human weaknesses because he has experienced them himself. So how could he avoid horror at the prospect of the cross? And yet, Jesus is more than just a man. He is also the divine Son of God who delights to do his Father's will. And so even as in his agony, Jesus prays to be saved from the cross, in the very same moment here, he affirms his commitment to press on to the cross. In verse 27, Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. 
Father, glorify your name. Jesus will press on to the cross because his greatest delight is to do his Father's will. His greatest desire is to bring glory to his Father. That desire has directed every day of his life on earth. And it will direct his actions now too as he goes forward into this hour that has now come. With all the suffering that's involved in that. The gospel may be free, but it is not cheap. Not for Jesus. And so the fact that Jesus does press on that testifies to his father's worth. His father's trustworthiness. The father is glorified by Jesus' devotion to doing his father's will. The fact that Jesus presses on testifies to his absolute confidence in the wisdom and goodness of the father's plan. And that has something to say to us. If the one who knows the Father best of all, if he could have such trust in the Father, even in this hour, can't you trust him in your hour? Your time of pain and trepidation? Can't I trust him in whatever hour I might go through? Here in John chapter 12, the Father will be glorified because what this hour brings comes through the devotion of the Son. And what this hour will bring is judgment and salvation. The Father will be glorified in judgment because it will show him to be the God who takes evil and sin seriously. And this hour will also glorify the Father by showing him to be the God who provides salvation for lost, dead, hell-deserving men and women. We'll see all of that in a moment. But before that, notice how this voice that comes from heaven confirms the Father's full involvement in what's going on. At the end of verse 28, he says he has glorified his name. That's through Jesus' entire life and ministry up to this point. And now, also in verse 28, the Father will glorify his name again in the greatest way through the event of Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. It's rare to read in the Bible about the Father's intervention in this way through direct speech. So the fact that God does speak directly here, it marks this hour as something of fundamental importance. It is central to the glory of God. It's central to our understanding of the kind of God He is. 
And then after the voice has come, in verse 31, Jesus says, Now is the time for judgment on this world. How will this hour bring judgment on the world? Isn't Jesus the one who's going to die? Well, in John's Gospel, the world tends to mean not planet Earth. It refers to the sinful human race in rebellion against God. And here in Jerusalem, as sinful humanity decides to do away with Jesus by sending him to the cross, that cross will actually pass judgment on them. As those who reject God by rejecting his beloved son. So the cross is going to stand as exhibit A for the case against humanity. Since the Garden of Eden, we humans have been flouting God's good authority. And that human rebellion is going to reach its climax in this hour. As humanity takes God's Son and does away with Him. You and I might object to that and point out that Jesus was killed by Jews in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. So what does that have to do with us? How is that judgment on us? Well, actually, the hands that killed Jesus were not Jewish. It was a Gentile, Pilate, the Roman governor who gave the order to crucify Jesus. It was Gentiles, Roman soldiers, who nailed Jesus to the cross. Yes, it was Jewish voices who shouted for Jesus' death. But Jesus was crucified by Jews and Gentiles. By representatives of this whole world in rebellion against God. This world that today continues to do away with Jesus. Either by scoffing at the truth about him. By ignoring the truth about him or defying the truth about him by declaring him to be less than the eternal Son of God. Less than the one who truly and exclusively has made the Father known. When we decide Jesus is just another religious figure, we are doing away with him just as much as these Jews and Gentiles in Jerusalem will a few days from now. And so his cross, resurrection, and ascension still pronounce the verdict of condemnation on this world. In verse 31, Jesus goes on to say, Now, in other words, in this hour, the prince of this world will be driven out. The prince of this world is the devil, Satan. In the chapters to come, Jesus will have more to say about him. Here we're told that this hour will bring judgment on Satan by driving him out. What does that mean? It means that what looks at first to be Satan's moment of greatest triumph will prove to be the crucial moment of his defeat. 
Whatever degree of power Satan has enjoyed as prince of this world, that power will be smashed by the event of Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. Yes, it's true, the book of Revelation describes the final consequences of Satan's defeat coming at the end of time when he's thrown into the lake of fire. But Revelation describes the actual defeat of Satan taking place at the cross. And the rest of the New Testament confirms that. In his letter to the Colossians, Paul says, it was by the cross that Christ triumphed over the spiritual powers and authorities. We read earlier in Hebrews chapter 2, it was by Jesus' death that he broke the power of the devil. So this hour will glorify the Father as he brings judgment through the Son, condemning human wickedness and defeating Satan. And this very same hour will also glorify the Father as he brings salvation. Look at verse 32. Jesus says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Being lifted up from the earth certainly means lifted up on the cross. But it means more than just that. It includes what came after, being lifted up from his grave in the earth and lifted up from on the earth to heaven. It is the crucified, risen, and exalted Jesus who will draw all people to himself. And it's obvious from the context here that all people does not mean all people without exception. The very last thing we heard about was the way the cross will bring God's judgment on those who reject Christ. All people here means all kinds of people. All people without distinction according to heritage or nationality. Gentiles as well as Jews. All those who will come to the crucified, risen, and exalted Jesus will be welcomed. They will be embraced by the Father who sent Jesus. And the Father will be glorified as the one who brought salvation through this hour. If you and I take this passage of Scripture seriously, we will never come to the conclusion that the heart of Christianity is Jesus teaching about how to live. The heart of Christianity is Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. It is this hour that each of the four New Testament Gospels focus on in their accounts of Jesus' life. And as we've seen, it is this hour that not only threw open the door to salvation and eternal life, this hour is also what fuels our day-to-day -day life as Christians. The new life that comes through this hour is what fuels our love and our service. 
the life that comes from this hour enables you and I to begin turning our backs on a self-centered life and begin embracing a God-centered, God-glorifying life. You and I will never become better people by sidelining this hour in order to focus on Jesus' commands for living. Trying to be better people without this is ultimately hopeless. We become better people by keeping this at the center of our worship and our lives. Let's encourage one another to do that now as we sing together. Focusing on this hour and what it means. We're going to join in, see him in Jerusalem, and then, yes, finished, the Messiah dies.
And so, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Amen.